Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, where is this? All right. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Today on the program, my guest is Karen Balin, author of a new novel called Revenge of the Scapegoat. A lot of the things that I think are funny in the book are like also very dead serious statements for me. And that's like my, that was like what it was like to be a kid. Like I would always say things and I'd be really serious and everybody would be laughing. All right, that is Karen Balin. Her new novel is called Revenge of the Scapegoat and it is available from Dorothy. Revenge of the Scapegoat is a wildly imaginative, very smart and often very funny book. It's hard to define really. Karen Balin has a very unique style very singular, and her new novel is a blend of surrealism, intellectualism, satire, and comedy. It's a book about trauma, the after effects of trauma, the role of art in processing trauma. It's about the sanctuary of friendship. Uh, It's about the intricacies and absurdities of institutions, among other things. I had a really nice time meeting Karen Balin and talking with her. You will hear that conversation in just a bit. Today's episode is made possible by Atria, publisher of Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, the new memoir from best-selling author Mary Laura Philpott. Mary Laura Philpott has been hailed as, quote, Nora Ephron, Irma Bombeck, Jean Kerr, and Lori Colwin, all rolled into one. And with Bomb Shelter, she returns with her distinctive voice to explore our protective instincts, the ways we continue to grow long after we're grown, and the limits, both tragic and hilarious, of the human body and mind. Bomb Shelter is poignant, it is powerful, it tackles the big questions, and it does so with humor and hope. Glennon Doyle calls it, quote, unforgettable, and Danny Shapiro calls it, quote, powerful 
and beautifully written. That's Bomb Shelter, the new memoir by Mary Laura Philpot, available now wherever books are sold from Atria. All right, so I do want to thank a few people for pre-ordering my new novel. Thank you to Jeff Little, Philip Shaw, and Maria Rode for doing that. I appreciate it. My new novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, and it is coming out on May 10th in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. I posted a sneak preview of the book in the podcast feed just this past Sunday. Maybe you heard it. I read the first chapter of the audiobook. I'm the reader of the audiobook, and so I excerpted the audiobook in the podcast feed for listeners of this show, an exclusive uh, preview. So, again, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. You can pre order it right now wherever books are sold. And uh, you can check out uh, my website, bradlisty.com, for more information. And uh, I appreciate your support if you are so inclined. I am, as I record this, just two days out from knee surgery. I wound up having knee surgery a little bit unexpectedly on Friday. I knew I was going to have the surgery, but I didn't think I was going to have it that quickly. But then they squeezed me in and I was a little bit leery about it because I don't, I have this thing about having surgery on a Friday afternoon. It just seems like everybody's checked out, right? And they're cutting on you, but I went ahead and did it. It worked out so far and I've been in uh, pain Uh, some pretty bad pain yesterday because they give you a nerve blocker when you do the surgery. They kind of, the anesthesiologist gives you a shot, which sort of shuts down your pain receptors. And so when I came out of surgery, I was, I was doing all right. But then yesterday the nerve blocker wore off and it was suddenly not all right in in a major way. So I didn't sleep very much last night and, uh, I'm now feeling better. I don't know what. I think I'm taking, I took some Advil and uh, we'll see if this is going to be enough to stave it off or if things are going to stabilize. But I guess I'm over the hump. I got the surgery and now I just have to sort of lie still and keep my leg perfectly straight for four to six weeks, which should be fun. <laughs> and uh, and then I can start you know, to do physical therapy and get this thing back in action. So that's the latest. It's been a weird couple of weeks, two, three weeks for my health, uh, with, uh, this knee, this kneecap fracture and then COVID and all the rest. But here we go. I'm doing the show and I'm very excited to have Karen Balin as my guest. Her novel again is called revenge of the scapegoat. It is out there now from Dorothy. And we spend a lot of this conversation trying to suss it out. You know, it's one of these books that sort of sticks with you after the fact because it's just so wild. It's so strange in uh, a good way. And it works on you because it's not like anything else you've ever read before. It's really hard to find any kind of like analog or comparison. It's just very much her vision. And I admire that. And we talk about it among other things. So let's get to the conversation with today's guest. This is Karen Balin. And one more time, her new novel is called Revenge of the Scapegoat. I'm in my house in Bennington, Vermont, and I'm sitting at my desk and my books are behind me in typical kind of COVID fashion. I've got the real author's look. Yeah, Um, you really do. And like the warm, I'm noticing some warm wood tones, if that's a way to put it. Yes, I moved into a house during the pandemic that is like a cabin. 
so my whole house is just full of not that anybody else besides you can see this but it looks like this oh look at that that's lovely and yeah it's really nice it smells good and especially in the summer when the sun starts making it warm the wood smells so nice what kind of what i mean uh, is it like cedar or what like what are the smells Oh God, that's where it ends for me. I have no idea. <laughs> like, is it a, like, like, let's describe the smell then. Is it just like a woodsy smell or like piney? Like smells like wood. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm sold. It sounds nice. I, I, I feel like summer in Vermont. It smells like pine. Yeah. It does smell piney. That's what Maybe you want pine. Vermont domiciles to smell like, or that's what I imagine them smelling like. It's pretty cozy. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your book. And I think where I want to start with you is early in your life, because (laughs) I read something fascinating about your childhood that you, as a child of around eight years old, had a typewriter in your room and you had it at your window and you wrote what you refer to as a captain's log every morning on a typewriter at age eight. Is this, can, can we confirm this? Yeah, I wasn't lying. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a typewriter. I forget how I fa- like. I think it was like an old typewriter, like that was in my parents' like attic or something. And I, they like kindly let me restore it. And like we went to a store, a stationery store, where they had typewriter ribbon, and we got to restore it a little bit. And then I had it in my room. Yeah. And so, what is a captain's log? Like, what did this actually look like in practice for you? Well, I had to, I felt like my bedroom was like a ship and my bed was like, often I felt like my bed was like, you know, I don't know, as a kid, I thought like, don't leave the bed. That's the ship, the carpets, the ocean. But then you could like crawl from the bed to like a chair by the window where the typewriter is. And then you can write out the things, you know, your daily reports. And then the backyard, the garden was like the sea. I mean, you know, kid stuff kid stuff but also like i think like extra imaginative yeah i'm was a very imaginative i was straight out of my secret garden and you know all the whatever i was a magical child yeah as were you (laughs) i'm sure i was maybe not that much i don't know if i was that creative but um i think that's interesting and i love hearing stories about how like the writerly impulse presents itself Mm, yeah in like people that i talk to on this show when they're young it seems to be it seems to be there in some fashion most of the time occasionally i'll talk to somebody who was like yeah i never read a book really or wrote anything until i was like 19 but it sounds like you were into it early i was i totally was i had journals and diaries and i was just always always into it yeah okay and then i read something else that struck me about your childhood you are of jewish descent uh, I don't know if that's on both sides or one side. It's all over. It's all over. Okay. And you looked like shockingly like Anne Frank as a child and to the point where your peers called you Anne Frank. Yeah. Do you think I still do? I can see it. I got to say now that I yeah. mean, once you say it, you know, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And so how did that, but I, like, that's a heavy thing to lay on a kid, right? I think that like, I think that the psychological impact of simply being Jewish and bearing that legacy of trauma and kind of hearing those stories as a child about the Holocaust and feeling an internalized sense of that, I just imagine, I'm not Jewish, but I imagine like that would have a big impact. And then on top of it, 
to be told like, wow, you look exactly like Anne Frank. <laughs> like that's, how did, how did you receive that is my question. I loved Anne Frank. I still do. Um, and I just worshipped her and thought she was amazing and cared about her diary so much. A lot of my early diaries, I, I addressed them at Dear Kitty to be like her. I thought she was so wonderful. And I loved her and because we looked so similar and there were some pictures that um, like, cause you, sometimes you just see the one picture that's like on the diary, but we, I had this book that was like an album of her, of pictures from her. And like some of them were just so uncannily similar to like specific, even like we were posed in the same way on the same, like on a beach and the, like this, just the same look. And like our faces were at the same angle. It just looks so similar. And I would have those up in my room. I mean, I was like an Anne Frank fangirl. Like, I loved her. She's incredible, an incredible, incredible person. So I didn't really, even though I think that it's amazing to grow up as a child and learn about the Holocaust and to be part of that lineage. And it's a very macabre thing. And in many ways, but that wasn't like a macabre thing for me. I just like loved her and thought of her like my sister or something. But like in this like many fold way where it's like because of the Holocaust connection or or the Jewish connection or something, but also just the writer connection that she was like this young writer journaling. I mean, I just I had no qualms about identifying with her at all. I mean, I don't even think I mean, the kids in my school were somewhat mean. I mean, like they were like, shitty kids but like I don't even think anybody was being mean when they said that to me because my school was like largely or at least when we moved I moved when I was 12 to the suburbs and like a lot of the kids in that school were Jewish and I, I didn't it didn't feel like bad that they were saying that it just felt like facts like I just looked a lot like her right right so. And this, like this, and, and, you know, she's a heroine. She's a great heroine yeah. of literature. So, I mean, there's a, there's an upside to this as well. And do you, do you feel like the, the captain's log imaginative, like boat in your bedroom kind of thing, was that related to your Anne Frank fangirling? Like, did you, were you building an identity like that was kind of, uh, related Were the two things related? I wish I could say for sure. I just, I don't know. I don't like remember what my first exposure was to Anne Frank or like, I just don't know what the ordering of that would have been. Cause I think I was kind of young when I did the like eight or nine, but that seems like I might've been reading the diary then. I just don't know. Yeah. It's hard but, to remember. I mean, I, my childhood yeah. is completely lost to me almost. So I get Is it. that true? Do you not remember it? Not as much as I would like. I, I, I think I sometimes yeah. overstate how bad my memory is. And I think I'm just frustrated that I don't have perfect recall or something but this the really sticky stuff i can remember i would say but i don't have i have a lot that just i lose you know even like yesterday i lose you know whereas i know some people my wife has a much better memory she can like remember specific days and like outfits from junior high and stuff like that <laughs> and i've got none of that like nothing well when i was a kid my family called me the elephant because i never forgot and I just still like that. <laughs> you got, yeah. So like, can you remember, do you have a photographic memory? No, not like that, but I don't, it's worse than that. It's worse <laughs> than that, Brad. <laughs> I just mean that I never forgot any slight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you hold a grudge? I, I, as a kid, I did. I was like a grudge holding kid for sure. But I think as an adult, 
I make a really like I have like a practice of not doing that. That's like I think I'm good at it. I'm good at not doing that now, but but it, it because I'm reflective about it because I I have that in me. Yeah, I wonder if all of us do. Like I mean, maybe it's to greater and lesser extents, but everybody's wounded, right? We all carry these wounds, and this is a this is at least part of what your book is about, and it made me think about the ways in which I hold on to certain things that I tell myself happened to me in the past, including in my childhood. We all have these little narratives. It's like part of how we build our identities, I think, about like how we were wounded. Is that, do you agree? Of course. And I think that my book is a lot about how if like the scapegoat in the family has a particular kind of relationship to that because the scapegoat is often being gaslit and like told that nothing happened to them or that it was their fault or whatever. So I find that I, I was really the scapegoat in my family. And I find that that has created in me a practice of remembering everything and, and, and insisting that things happened and insisting on my memories and honoring my memories because I don't I don't share those memories with my family members. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So can you talk a little bit uh, about like how you were the scapegoat of your family just so listeners can get oriented a little bit? Because, you know, this factors into your book, but not in a one for one way. I think you do a lot of like I, I read you in prepping for this conversation. You said something that I loved where you said, you know, I'm working in a kind of auto fiction mode, but I'm playing with my biography. And that's definitely evident on the page. There's a great sense of play and imagination in your fiction and surrealism and absurd comedy and and then also like like academic rigor like it's this strange soup you know that that works and it's very defiantly original and um it just feels it's like one of these books where i was like well this is the only person who could have possibly written this book i'm just curious to know 
about the the scapegoating, like just so people can understand more about why this became uh, a subject of interest for you that led to a book? Yeah, <laughs> I knew we were going to get into it. I mean, the book's premise is that Iris, the, the protagonist of this book, at the beginning of the book, she receives a package from her father who she's estranged from. And the father has sent her letters in the mail that he had written and given to her when he when she was a teenager, both when she was 14 and maybe 16. And then she's 36 years old and all of a sudden she receives this package and like the letters are like coming back to her again. So the book begins with her just being so upset to receive this package and to re-read and relive the experience of her, that very same father giving her these letters yet again, years later, and kind of like out of context, mysteriously in the mail. And so, and then the book kind of like launches from that moment. And that is a nonfiction, like that's, that did happen to me at the beginning of the pandemic in May, 2020, I did receive a package from my dad who I am pretty much estranged from and have been for many years. And I got a package in the mail with a couple different things, uh, including two, these two letters. And they, um, I mean, I was very upset. I was just, you know, I've spent a lot of time in my adult life, like healing from that relationship in all these different ways and moving on and being okay. And the letters just really, oof, it's like a shiv. It was hard. And they're weird letters because they're not like, I'm going to kill you or something. They're like polite in a way, but they politely explain that I am the reason the family isn't, that I'm the reason the family is not good. And that was just a very devastating thing uh, to hold that position in my family. And it was weird to get such proof of it. What what was the, may I ask what the rationale was for why you were the problem? <laughs> That's such <laughs> a heavy thing to lay on a kid. Like what a fucked up thing to do to a child. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I have so many thoughts about, it, you know, like I think that sometimes the, uh, the child who is like the town crier, like the one who says that something's wrong, then that child gets a lot of that kind of attention. And I was definitely that. I would often get so, I don't know, I was like so upset by my parents' relationship that I would get in the middle of it and get really, I was like angry as a kid. Like I would just like start to get really in the middle of it. You spoke out. I spoke out. And I was probably the kid who was like the most similar to my dad. We probably had like a lot more in common temperamentally or something. And your mother was ill when you were a child too, right? That was a complicating factor. Yeah, it was like really very complicating. And I think that it complicated her decision making around things because she was really vulnerable. She had multiple sclerosis? Yeah, had and has. Yeah. And um yeah, and she was like diagnosed with that when I was ten. I don't know how old was she when I was ten? I mean in her like mid forties, early for early mid forties. So I think she yeah, like just there was I don't know. I mean it was it was a hard 
time. Uh, you know, it was really hard. And I was really, I was, oh, my mom has this great story from when I was, and I don't, I remember everything. I do not remember this, but my mom tells this story. When I was eight, I called my mom into my bedroom. I would often schedule meetings with my parents to like come to my bedroom to like have a meeting. <laughs> come on board and, the ship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I had scheduled a very specific meeting with her and I had like a, maybe an easel with like big paper or something in there. It was eight. And I had basically made like the equivalent of like a PowerPoint presentation about the fact that she should leave my dad and take us with her. And I had like all like the pros and cons listed out. And like, I was like, really just saying like, you can do this. Let's do this. It would be the right thing to do. And I like laid it out for her. <laughs> and she says now she was like, I was just sitting there knowing you were right, but I didn't, I couldn't do it. Interesting. You know, and so it's what I was thinking as you were saying that, as I was thinking about the emotional intelligence of children or of some children and how strange it is when the power dynamic in a family gets inverted like that, where the child is taking the lead and mm -hmm. basically acting as a responsible adult at the age of eight. I mean, trying to write a difficult situation or write the ship if we're going to continue with this metaphor, you know, and there's something very heartbreaking about that, but also something just like absurd, you know, there's something absurd about a child having to bear that responsibility. And I've heard it many times in my life. And it's not always in a situation where, you know, a marital relationship is difficult or a family situation is abusive. It can just be where, you know, parents have uh, low self-esteem or there's, mm. there's emotional dysfunction or repression in some way. And, you know, like human stuff that's not maybe quite as tough, but is nevertheless challenging for a child who suddenly finds himself or herself like taking the reins and the yeah. parent, the parents sometimes encouraging it even, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. It's really weird. I mean, I just, that was like the weird, one of the weird things about the scapegoat is that they're endued with so much power, but it's like not power they actually have, but their scene is so powerful and it's so weird. Like you're like a kid. Like I just remember, I have some memories of like my dad getting really mad or he was always like threatening to leave us or maybe like storm, like storming out or something. And he's just getting mad. And was he a drinker? Yeah. Was it, was this? No, few, no, no it's it not was... addiction complicated stuff at all. Okay. Um, and I just have memories of like my other family members pleading with me to make him stay. And there was like a lot of that, like pleading with me, like, you're the one you've got to get, you've got to do like, don't, don't make him get him back or Oy. it was like up to me. And right. that's like, a that's a lot to come out of. It was hard. It was like really psychically wounding to me. And for me, the, what happened in my teenage years is that I became an ecstatic. I think probably before I was a teenager, I just became an ecstatic. What does that mean? I, I, I mean, most technically, it means that I spent my, like, particularly my 16th and 17th years wandering around, like, center city Philadelphia alone, barefoot, like, chanting the poems of Allen Ginsberg and shit. <laughs> like, that's what that means. Yeah. Like the Hare, Hare Krishna almost. <laughs> I was like a little bit of like a, a beat poet, Hare Krishna. <laughs> so technically that's what that meant. But I was like really into 
having the most rich ecstatic experiences i mean i would just like i don't know i just all kinds of weird stuff i would just like go into my closet in my bedroom and just cackle and writhe <laughs> okay i i don't think like based on what you've told me about what you were up against i don't think this is the most outrageous choice to have made in fact i think it sounds healthier than like what a lot of young people might have done with it. You know what I'm saying? You could have easily like backslid into substance abuse. Maybe you did. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that was later, but you know, there, there are healthier and less healthy ways to deal with trauma and getting into like Ginsburg's poetry and trying to seek like ecstatic, like direct engagement with life or whatever the beat ethos, you know, guides us to do. I'm, I'm sympathetic to beats and I often defend them because they get, they get beat on a lot. I mean, I guess, by me, but yeah, pun, 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 accident, pun accidentally intended, but I'm not saying they were right about everything, but I think like, this is sort of how I have, uh, I have sympathy for hippies in a similar way where I'm like, the general instincts were good. Like it may not have always worked out at the level of execution, but it was basically like a post-World War II reaction to the nuclearization of the world. And like a, a feeling of like, great, like ennui and just like a sense that things had irrevocably changed and that humanity was heading down a dark path. That's my read on it. I don't think that's, I don't think that's terribly off base. Um, but you know, it could be a little bit goofy at the level of execution. I will concede that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. What are, what are we all supposed to do? I don't know. I was, I worshiped all the beat poets, um, in high school and I didn't have a feminist feeling at all in high school. I just, I felt that I was a beat poet. I was a man. Like I just, I, I related to like Sal and on the road or I, I just saw myself as, I didn't understand that I was like out of the club or something. I just was one of them. And for me, the I was obsessed with Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And um, when I was 16, I ran away from home. I, cause he was reading in DC. So I drove with a friend, some friends to DC and I like wept into his hands. <laughs> did you did you talk to him? Yeah, I stayed I like had my book signed, my Coney Island of the Mind. I had it signed and I was like so I was like trembling. I mean it, he was like my dad, you know? Like I would just have other dads besides my dad and he was my dad. He was raising me at the time and he was wonderful and I just wept <laughs> to meet him. Was he nice was to you? He was so lovely. He was really tired. And it was like I was at the end of the line and he was just like kind of done. He wasn't even looking up. And then I was like, I was like out of like a Dickens novel. I was like, Mr. Ferlinghetti. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was, And then I said, I just want you to know that you've made me very happy. Aww. And then I burst into tears. And then he looked up and he shook my hand and he asked me my name and he signed my book and it was really sweet. Wow. So RIP. RIP. And I think that's lovely. And I think again, like I, I commend you for having like good instincts. There are worse places to seek like father figures or guidance. I mean, you turn <laughs> to books and poetry, like you could have turned a lot of places, you know, <laughs> like I feel like that's kind of, that's very sweet. And the literary geek in me appreciates that that's where you went. I think that's cool. Yeah. And I would like get in trouble because I was always like, I, I, my whole high school life, I was like lived in a web of lies and deceit from my parents. Like they had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, it was so many lies. And I was mostly in going downtown to like do 
do things, but it was so funny that I was lying because I was doing the most wholesome things ever. <laughs> you were not in, you didn't sound like you were doing a ton of drugs or were you smoking pot or? I did love pot in high school. Yeah, I did. But I didn't even do that when I went downtown. I was like going to plays. I went to a play almost every night. I would go get the student, like if you waited just at the last minute, you get like $5 tickets, like last minute student $5 tickets at different things. I would like see a lot of plays and um, walk around barefoot so I could feel the earth yeah. while I was walking. Oh, I would like stop at the Wawa and I got like two bananas and I put one in each of my big cargo pants in the 90s <laughs> and just walk around being like these bananas are all I need. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I think that sounds great. And the barefoot thing, is that called grounding? Isn't there a word for that? Where you're oh, like, yeah. Now it's grounding. Yeah. I was grounding. You were grounding. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, listen, I'm very impressionable. I'm prepared to believe anything that I read about health and wellness on the internet. So <laughs> Me too. Yeah. If you tell me that like walking around with bananas in your cargo pants barefoot is somehow helping you, I'll believe it, you know? Uh, I think there's got to be something to it. Walking around barefoot on the earth probably is good for you on some level. I think it is. Yeah. Do you still do it or like for old time's sake? <laughs> yeah, actually, one thing that I like more than anything is to be on like a hot rock. You probably have access to that in LA in a way that's just like amazing. So many hot rocks out here. But yeah, I, I put like a, I have like a stone patio that I that I got, I like, I invested in a stone patio <laughs> and it's like with these really beautiful stones, like, a, like they're not like a concrete or whatever. They're like beautiful stones from this area. And, um, I feel so good just putting my feet on these stones. It makes me really happy. Was it like limestone, sandstone? They are Goshen stones. Goshen stones. Okay. They're really pretty. So... Did you go to college? Yeah, I did. How did that happen? Well, I wanted to go so far away, of course. And my dream was to go to San Francisco State University. That was like, and or I wanted to go to, um, what is that other, um, the new college of California. Like those were my dream schools. But my, yeah, my parents were like, wouldn't let me go so far away. And so I was really into theater. I wanted to be like a playwright and also an actor. So I ended up going in Chicago. There's a DePaul University has like this theater conservatory that I went to for two quarters. They were on the quarter system. And then I dropped out and I had moved into this house with other 18 year olds who were very into the punk ethos. And I had never known about punk music or like that kind of like that was not what was cool in the Philadelphia suburbs or I didn't learn about that. I was just like a beat. I was like, a, yeah, <laughs> I didn't I, know about the, the I, I didn't have any access to punk either. I'm from the Midwest. I was like, I didn't hear about that until later, but. Yeah. So like that was like a whole new thing and they were really into, it was, you know, this was like the lead up to the Iraq war. Like I, I went, I was a freshman at DePaul, like the September of nine 11. So, um, you know, I got very into protesting and activist kind of communities, you know, doing stuff like that and getting into that kind of thing. But then I just dropped out of the school because I was so into just the conversations I was having all night with my 
roommates were better. And I don't know, theater school actually turned out to be kind of cheesy. So I just like left. But then the next year I picked up again at Columbia College in Chicago, which at the time was like an open admissions art school. I think maybe it's not open admissions anymore, but I thought that was really punk of them to be open admissions. And it was so cool. It was like a building downtown. It was very, a lot of non-traditional students. It wasn't very expensive at that time. It was like, it just felt kind of casual to go and weird. So I did that. I got like a art school degree in creative writing. And then I've done other, like I have an MFA and a PhD now. So I kept going. Again, I feel like this could have easily gone in a different direction. Like a lot of kids could come up in difficult circumstances like that and, you know, they just never get around to going to school. But it seems like you were self-directed on that level to some extent. Oh, yeah. And I mean, whatever, the culture in my house had all kinds of things to it. But, you know, we were like Jewish middle class people where it was important for me to get A's. Like that was also true. Like I... I wasn't good at getting, I didn't, I wasn't that great of a high school student. Like I was okay, but I was so right brained that I just like couldn't really do well at all. I wasn't that good at everything, but then art school really suited me and it was a great, oh, I just was such an art school student. Like I didn't want to take any other kind of class. I just wanted to do creative work. It was, it really suited me. It was like, and I loved just going to school, like in a building downtown. Like I didn't want the college experience. All of my friends were like 30. It was, I, I was like dating somebody who was like a lot older than me. Like I just was like, <laughs> I had this like too cool for school kind of thing. So it really suited me to do that. What were the, what, what was the switch? Like if you were at, if you were at DePaul and you kind of did two years of theater and then you go to Columbia, where did you switch your concentration or was it more of like a, um, like a bunch of different stuff, you know, was like a hybrid education in the creative arts or did you have to pick something to focus on? Yeah. I mean, I was only at DePaul for two quarters, so oh, that's like quarters. less than a year. Right. Um, I really like didn't, that's, but, um, yeah, I was, I was, had been into playwriting, but then I got kind of turned off by it or just like turned around. And at Columbia, they had a really like established it wasn't even created. I think they must have. I think they might have changed everything now. But at the time, it was like just fiction writing. Like there wasn't even there weren't even any poets on the twelfth floor. It was all fiction writing. It was like very like kind of Chicago like work a day like like we're building fiction kind of thing. I don't know. It had that vibe to me. But um, it was like a kind of intensive program, which had its own intensities, and it was interesting. But it was like. I appreciated going there because people were serious about it. Like they weren't coddling a bunch of like, it wasn't coddling. They weren't like trying to make our parents happy by like presenting program. Like it was like really real. Like it felt real to me at least uh, like, you know, in the ways that I guess it, things could feel real in like 2001. <laughs> like, you know, like we drink with our professors after class and talk about writing all night. Like it felt, yeah. I feel like you can't do that now. Like there's like a different, different vibe these days. But at the time it just felt very like you're in the city doing this thing with other people who really care about it. And everybody was really like, like had a really like, I don't, like hardcore kind of everybody was being really into it. And, you know, smoking cigarettes outside of the building. Like it just had a cool art school vibe. I liked it a lot. Yeah. And just that sense of community, you know, like, like people, 
Like I remember that from uh, my MFA. The thing that I loved the most was just meeting other people who cared about books and making art. And I feel like if you're if you're not in some kind of community, you can get pretty lonely in it or feel alienated. And I don't know. That was the best part of it. The education part of it. I don't know. I don't know how much I got. I think a lot of it is <laughs> has to come from you. But meeting people and just having that sense of shared mission or something was everything for me and the me time too. and the time to make art and just the time like a place to hide out where that was important you know i loved it yeah like people would get together they'd have like salons where we would just all like bike over to each other's weird apartment situations and just break it down share our work like it was people cared yeah it was awesome and it was writing work this was like a yeah at the time I don't have a lot of memories of like being very interdisciplinary. Like there was like a real concentration of like, it was like all about writing. And then at the time I really haven't kept up with, I mean, this was just like my undergrad. Like I, I haven't kept up with how they're structuring things these days, but yeah, at the time it was, it wasn't even like poets and fiction writers. Like it was like very like, it was just like an intensive kind of like the fiction writers. I don't know. It had a whole vibe and it, whatever. I mean, I feel like then I went to MFA school and actually I met a lot of my like most kind of like, that's where I met a lot of soulmates in my life. Where did you go? I went to the university of Montana Oh. and it was just, I hear from people like, Oh yeah, my MFA, like I didn't meet, like nobody hung out or, you know, there are different kinds of crews or I just met a lot of soulmates. Like a lot of my, the people who just are so huge to me are from that that time. That's great. That's how it should be. Yeah. So I, I feel like we've gotten kind of like the, like one of the threads, like a, a big thread leading to Revenge of the Scapegoat. Uh, another thing that I want to talk about, just so we can kind of give listeners, I don't know, it just gives listeners like a foundation with respect to the book and where you're coming from is the issue of physical pain and illness, which uh, you've written about in nonfiction in a book called Blackfishing the IUD. Am I remembering that correctly? Correct. Okay, so you were made ill from an IUD and it has caused you a lot of physical pain. And that is in that book in a kind of more nonfiction uh, way. And then it finds its way into this book in a fictional way. Can you just talk a little bit about that experience and how it informed Iris? Mm -hmm. Well, in 2019, I put out a book, Blackfishing the IUD, which is about, it's collectively written. So it's about my, but also other people's experiences with the IUD. And uh, if you're experiencing, dear listeners, if you're experiencing <laughs> joint pain, depression, anxiety, hair loss, heart palpitations, autoimmune type symptoms, fatigue, and you have an IUD and those don't seem like symptoms that are connected to the IUD, I guess I'm, I'm just here to tell you that they might be because a lot of people report those symptoms. And when I got sick on the IUD, what I learned is that I wasn't alone and that tens of thousands of people online are talking about this um, because they've, their lives have been really changed by it. And you think about the IUD as a local device that might cause like pain in like a local way or like, um, oh, it hurts to get it 
take put in or something. But actually, um, with a lot of medical devices and a lot of metal medical devices, what people are finding is that there are local to systemic reactions that have to do with inflammation at the local site that causes a chain reaction of inflammation, but also with the metal, possibly a toxicity. And so I had the copper IUD and there's a burgeoning research around the, re the relationship between the copper IUD and my particular autoimmune disease, which is rheumatoid arthritis. I experienced my first rheumatoid arthritis flare a couple weeks after having the IUD removed in an emergency manner because it was making me so sick to have it in. And um, as I was potentially, I suppose, maybe detoxing that copper, my body went pretty haywire. And I woke up one morning and could hardly walk. My feet were in so much pain. And then all the other things started happening. And now I'm somebody who has RA, rheumatoid arthritis, and I'm not alone. So um, read my book or look online to other groups if you're concerned about the IUD. But yeah, so I wrote that book. And then, um, but then it weirdly didn't make my RA go away, even though maybe some part of me thought it would. Um, something about writing something seems like it will, <laughs> you just put it there. But then I was like, oh shit, it still hurt. So um, I uh, just, uh, I don't know, like sometimes protagonists aren't sick. And I'm like, that's weird. So many people are sick. And so I just wanted to write a great protagonist who has RA because I'm a great person who has RA. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And we're going to get to more of that. Um, I want to talk about some of the comedic aspects of pain and how you, I think, deal with it in real life and also render it on the page. But, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to trace the big, the big lines here. Um, there's childhood stuff. There are the letters that you received from your father at the beginning of the pandemic. There is the RA and the fact of this illness and the pain that it causes. And then another part of the novel's origin story. And I completely concede that like works of fiction or books, they originate in a million different ways. So I'm just focusing on the big ones. But one of the um, things that I read about this book in terms of how it originated for you is that um, at least in part, it originated from an experience of being very stoned. <laughs> so I have to ask you, <laughs> tell us, please. <laughs> yeah, this is totally a stoner novel. I love stoner novels. Like I love, like one of my favorite writers is Richard Brodigan. And I think, I don't, you know, I just like, I think his novels are like stoner novels. There's like a stoner logic in them or something, but this is a stoner novel. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like, I like to be stoned. How much pot are you smoking? How much pot? <laughs> I wish I could do it. I, I used to be able to do it. And now I just, I don't know. I like, it's this like thing I aspire to in a weird way. And yet every time I do it, I'm like, feel dumb and oh okay you know it's just i think my neurochemistry I, I i envy these people who like become like a better version of themselves this seems to be a thing there are certain people who like they smoke pot and it's like they have energy there's no paranoia there's no social <laughs> dysfunction in fact there might even be an enhanced social situation i find that like a very very low even micro dose can sometimes be helpful to me if i'm going to like a party or something but if i'm just like hanging out I think I'm at a stage in my life where I just like to be sober. Yeah, well, fair enough. It is really different for different people. Yeah, for me, it's always been kind of helpful. Like, it, yeah, it just like is a nice adjustment for me. I feel like, I don't know, 
the world just feels so fucked up lately. I really appreciate, I just really appreciate that plant as a way to like be in this world sometimes. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I just, sometimes I like to just have a little gummy at night. Sure. Um, what, so what about this big experience where you're with your partner and <laughs> this you, was a bigger one. Yeah. Your partner is, I'm going to, I'm going to quote something that you said, your partner was quote, walking you through being alive. So that's a big one. <laughs> well, that's like, I feel like so many people have like that story about where they like ate too much of an edible. It's just one of those stories where you're like, and then you think you're dying and you know, yeah. everybody has that great, not every, but you know, many people have that story. And it was just me having that story. I mean, I think that like the added, maybe I'll like get a sympathy vote because I was really trying to, um, I was like getting some different edibles because I was in a lot of panic at the time because I was in a lot of pain. So not that you need sympathy for it, but I don't know. But like I was sort of like, I don't know. There was a charge to me being stoned in this moment because it was during a moment of a lot of pain and uncertainty about what was going on with me. And I was terrified and I was trying all kinds of things at that time. I was like, you know, if somebody told me to put bananas up my nose, I would have done anything. <laughs> you know, I would have done anything. Yeah. So, um, but it should be noted that like part of your uh, weed consumption has to do with RA, right? It's not just pure, like trying to bliss out or whatever. Like you're trying to deal with chronic pain. At the time, that's what I was trying to do. For me personally now, I don't, I'm not somebody who finds um, pot to be helpful for pain. I mean, some people do obviously, but I, I actually don't. But at the time I was really trying to medicate in a lot of different ways. And I just had this chocolate, hot chocolate that (laughs) took way too much. And I, you know, I could just feel my whole heart, you know, all the things that, you know, everybody has a story, I feel like, but, um, Yeah. So it was just like a really long experience of being too stoned, like not in a fun way at all. Like I was just like sitting on the couch and I had to like, it was like hours in and I had to like pee, but I could not figure out how to get to the bathroom. And like my partner, Jean-Paul was like, he laid out a four step plan for me to get up and like do it. (laughs) And he was just like being so, he's such a sweetie. Like he's just wonderful. So he was just being the loveliest. And, and then it didn't occur to me like at some point. So then at some point I was like coming down to a reasonable degree, which meant that I was like basically tripping and, but I was like, could be left alone. And it was like the first inkling that I had that he was tired because he'd been doing this for like, who knows how long, five hours, eight hours, I don't know. So he was tired and he was just like, all right, I'm going to put you in this bed and I'm going to go in the other room for a second. And then I was in there and I was just like, my feet were like, started talking to me. and um, Which shows up in the novel. Yeah. In the novel, Iris's feet are in a lot of pain from the RA and the pain causes them to become Bouvard and Pecuchet, who are the old retired men who are characters in the Flaubert novel, Bouvard and Pecuchet. But in this instance, in, I don't know, 2016 or something like that, I was just in bed feeling like I was tripping at this spot <laughs> at this point as the come down. And I was just like putting on the most charming puppet show between my feet. And they were just like, <laughs> And Bouvard and Pecochet are like hilarious. They're like really dumb, but they're like really pedantic and they're really fussy with each other. 
and they love each other, but it's like, I don't know. <laughs> and so I was just putting on this puppet show, which Lord, I think that Lord, John Paul back into the room where, so I, I could like entertain him a little bit. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of my writing has become what I've wanted it to be since I've met him because I like, I want to entertain him so badly. Oh, that's sweet. Um, yeah, I feel really sweet about it. But yeah, so then it just became like a trope that my feet were Bouvard and Pecache. Yeah. Okay. And like, this is something about you creatively that I really admire is your willingness to sort of go there. And as a reader, you go, oh, like the feet are talking. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like these kind of surreal, absurd things happen. And then you always up the ante. Like mm -hmm. that is something that I feel like I've, I learned from where I'm like, oh, like you can lean into these things. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you can have these imaginative flights and you can just keep going. You don't have to apologize for them or like reel yourself back in or like, you know, scramble to moor yourself to some semblance of reality or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you have a real creative courage in that way and um, like a lack of self-consciousness, at least on the page. Like you don't seem to have any apology at all for it. And I love that about your book. Thank you. I was just remembering the other day, my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Levine, who probably really helped me with this because she was like, it was like a weird dynamic in my fifth grade class with her where she like kind of only loved me and was like mean to all the other students. And I have like these memories that she would do like pizza parties for the good students, but it would just be me in the back eating pizza. <laughs> it's like really messed up. But she was like kind of awesome. She was I have all these like cool memories of her lessons, but she would make all the students do these sketches where they had to do some sort of like fantastical or it, I don't even think that the rule was that it was fantastical, but students would constantly apologize for what they imagined. They would always say they'd always have in the sketch that they were waking up from a dream at the end of the sketch. And she and Mrs. Levine would get really mad. She would get mad at all kinds of things. She'd be so mad. She was always so mad at all the boys with their Timex watches that would beep on the hour. She was so upset. <laughs> she was so mad. And she was like, nobody can say that it's a dream. Never take it back. Like she had this real like, vitality to her. But maybe I always like learned that from her. Like never take it back. Just own 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 your imagination. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good lesson. And in this book, I'm going to try to give kind of like an overview of the plot for listeners without, I hope, spoiling anything um, too much. You have Iris in like the, the book is broken up into sections. And in the first section, it's Iris and her friend Ray. Please tell me I'm remembering names correctly. I sometimes screw this up, but right? Yes. Iris and her friend Ray, who is very much based on my friend Ray Levy, who I just want to tell you is your biggest fan. Oh, really? Yeah. Hi, Ray. Ray loves you. Thanks, Ray. Yeah. Is Ray, did Ray go to Montana with you? No, I met Ray in PhD school in Utah. Oh, okay. Well, shout out to Ray. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's like you and this character based on your friend Ray in the first section. And then from there, Iris ventures off into the countryside in Ray's Subaru. There's kind of a swap. Like she gives Ray her house and Ray gives her his uh, Subaru or his car, right? Is it yeah, a... Ray gives Iris their car, yeah. Okay, and so they go, uh, or she goes out to the countryside and winds up at this like 
sort of uh what do you call it like an art museum in the new england pastoral farm country that's open only one month a year it's this great send-up of the art world i felt like your book is really funny and uh is a great satire in a lot of different ways but especially i think of this art world and you know i hope this is okay to reveal because it it struck me as being so out there that i couldn't believe you made it work but you know uh iris winds up becoming well, first of all, she takes on a different identity when she's there, right? She refers to herself as Vivitrix. Vivitrix and Marigold, yeah. Vivitrix Marigold. So she takes on this kind of persona and then she's in this field and these cows <laughs> in the field or one cow comes up and just sort of like places its hoof upon her like solar plexus or upon her sternum without exerting too much pressure, but just holding her there. So she's like under this cow. And I'm just like this, I'm like, this is completely wild. And yet you bring me along somehow. I'm on board with this. And then there's this whole backstory about how the cows are from, uh, forgive the pronunciation, is it Sensenhausen? Sachsenhausen. Sachsenhausen in Germany. And they were, you know what, they, they were on concentration camp soil at one point and trained to sort of stomp on uh, Jews who were trying to flee the Germans. Is that right? Or the Nazis? They were cows on a farm kind of adjacent to the concentration camp in Sachsenhausen. And they were trained to, to they're the heart stepping cows of Sachsenhausen and they're trained by their farmer. If there are any escaping Jews from the, the camp and that were lying on the farmland fields, the cows will come and hold their hoof over the, the Jew's heart, but not stomp on it, just hold it there until the farmer comes to, to shoot the Jew. Okay. And like, I, forgive me if I sound like a complete fool here, but is this real? This isn't real. They didn't have cows trained. This is fiction. <laughs> like, You're making me so happy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, listen, the evil of the Nazis is uh, unsurpassed. Yeah. I'm willing to believe almost anything of these people. I know. You know. That's really true. Yeah, of course. The things we hear about the Holocaust or about genocide or about what people do to one another and the kinds of technologies that people make around around genocide, around murder, around scapegoating are like so insane that of course it's believable. Yeah. Um, but no, okay. I made that up. Yeah. So it's just like, I don't know. It's that sort of stuff where it's like, it's surreal, but is it real? And it's also funny and it's kind of doing all these different things at once. And so Irish slash Vivitrix is kind of taken in. She becomes a cowherd <laughs> at this, uh, at this art museum in the countryside and these cows are part of an art project like they're kind of a what do you call it um what do you call what's the art world term an installation like an outdoor installation almost mm -hmm. you know uh, by this german female artist named irina yeah irina spanish yeah oh is she spanish Okay, sorry. So That's anyway, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to keep track. Yeah, I'm trying to keep track of it all. But uh, so you have that going on, and there's, you know, there's multiple things going on in this section of the book. Like part of it is a satire of the art world. Part of it is about Irish slash Vivitrix um, reckoning with her trauma, right? And then also her past, and you know, I think her Jewish heritage, and like, am I missing anything? There's a lot. There's a lot of different stuff, sort of. Um, you know, happening in concert. Yeah. It's just, it's all, all kinds of stuff is happening. Okay. I would agree. Yeah. And then maybe we'll leave the third section for readers. 
you know, but if things kind of come full circle at the end as you know, they tend to, or hope you hope they will in a book. Um, but I think that, you know, you, we talked earlier about how you're playing with biography. We've heard about how you went to art school. Like I can sort of see the DNA of this book in the little tidbits that you shared from your personal life. And then like a particular aspect of the book that I want to talk to you about is how funny it is. Because I read somewhere where, you know, you've kind of like learned that you're a funny writer after the fact. Like this is not something you've ever like conceived of on your own. You know what I'm saying? It's one of these things that sort of just happens on the page and then people tell you about it after they read you. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, that is my experience of being a funny writer is that I learn after the fact. I am never constructing a joke, really. Are you laughing while you write? Sometimes that's never the goal, though. The goal is not so much like humor, but the goal is that like kind of to be bonkers and to lean in and to just be just be as wild as I want to be and to like and to also be mathematically like to be mathematical in some way. Like there's some things that are just correct that should happen. Like, like um, plot wise or language wise or both language wise. Yeah. So like I'm satisfied by it because so it's funny, but it's like funny. Like the thing that matters to me is that it's like the perfect thing to say, like not so much that it's like the funny thing to say. And it's an intuitive understanding of like I, I kind of relate to this. I think a, a lot of writers feel this way in one way or another about writing where like you just it's like this intuitive, deeply satisfying thing when you feel like you get a line right. <laughs> Yeah, it's that. That's exactly what it is. It feels like you're just doing like you're the right little slant circle is happening that has the perfect stamp of like return, but difference. And a lot of the things that I think are funny in the book are like also very dead serious statements for me. Like I'm just like, and that's like my that was like what it was like to be a kid. Like I would always say things and I'd be really serious and everybody would be laughing and I'd be like, I'm serious. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of like I'm I'm used to feeling that stance. Yeah. So I I, I will read something back to you. Uh, I think it's from a review of the book. And it talks about how unique your style is, which I would agree with. And it, it, def- it describes it as one as a style that, quote, fluidly juggles surrealism, intellectualism satire and comedy and i think that pretty well covers it and then along with that uh i read where you talk about writing for you and how the impulse to write and your desire to write creatively is born out of the need to create a language that is unreadable to my family of origin and this is this makes a lot of sense, you know, based on what we've talked about already. It's also sweet and heartbreaking. And it helped like that line, this need to create a language unreadable to your family of origin makes your style make sense to me. Mm. Like, I, I don't know, that, that helped it click into place for me. I was like, oh yeah, that's what, that's what's happening here. Because it's so wild. It's like so creatively wild on the page and it's so particular and I don't know. I couldn't help but you you can't help but have to reckon with it as a reader. And I love to try to make sense of I guess why these things are the way they are. And I I can imagine you in your bedroom at the helm of your ship or whatever trying to come up with language that's yours, like your own private language. 
And now here you are all these years later writing books in your own private language. And I think that's just lovely. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's how it feels. Feels like making my own little nest or home. And I, I think about that like, ugh, it's such a bummer for the book tour that I'm doing for this. I had something scheduled at City Lights, but then they canceled just because of COVID stuff. Like they mm. decided they didn't want to do events. Well, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, like Mecca. I mean, this is all coming full circle. <laughs> and I was just thinking to myself, like, I'm just taking my teenage self on the best cruise right now. Like, I'm just like, really, just like, I'm like, really, I'm giving her everything she wanted. <laughs> I'm just like, so happy for her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But the the, the event got canceled. So. <laughs> well, you know, there'll be another day. And yeah. I feel like just by writing this book, you're taking your teenage self on a cool adventure, you know, and, uh, you know, I think that there are a couple of things I want to talk to you about uh, before we part company. And the first is that you had a difficult time, as almost all of us do, like finding time to write and getting into the right headspace and trying to sort of juggle all the different pressures that come at us in life, personal, professional, and otherwise, so that you can have enough space to think clearly and to let a fiction emerge from you, you know, and to, and to play imaginatively, all these things we've been talking about. And one of the things that you did was meditate. And I think you described it as like, sort of like prior to sitting down to write, you would sit down with your eyes open and just calmly stare at a corner of your bed <laughs> for 20 minutes. And this would help you get yourself ready to create. Is that correct? That was the beginning of it. Like, yeah, I would do that to begin. And I would do these like journal entries that were just um, sort of images of me lying in a field with a cow stepping on my heart. And I would just write about that. And I would write about Caroline's hair. Um, Caroline is a character in the book who has really curly kind of golden hair and I would or like red and silver. And I would just write about her hair a lot and about the cows. Like, I don't know. I was just trying. Um but then the thing that really happened, so that was like around May and then um, school let out. I mean, I'm like, I'm a professor, so school let out and it was such a crazy semester of adjusting to COVID and 2020. And then I just recognized that we weren't going to go anywhere for the summer and that this was it. And I decided to do um, The Artist's Way, <laughs> the Julia Cameron. Book. Sure, sure. Yeah, I've done that. The morning okay. pages, morning pages. You kind of strike me as a morning pages kind of person. I mean, I yeah. wish I, I wish I could tell you that I'm still doing them, but I did them in college. It was like early, early when I was just deciding that I was a writer, I had no idea how to do it. I had no idea. And so I got that book and I did morning pages religiously for like, you know, six months to a year. And I think it helped. I, I, how could it not? Just putting pen to paper, yeah. right? You know, and getting used to that. Yeah. Totally. That's lovely. That's cool. That was like, you're like, all right, I want to start this. How do I, what do I do? How do I start? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. For me, it was like, I certainly didn't use it to start. I was so identified with writing and so particular and like, frankly, quite a snob. Um, and like, uh, the morning pages seem a little bit like, a touchy feely or something or, you know, and there's, you know, God is involved in them and stuff. And it's like recovery language. So I knew about them for years, but I was also a little bit like not me, but then you just, you get older and you don't 
give a shit about that. And you just break open. You're like, I'll take anything. I'll do anything. Everything's wonderful. Like you don't have that anymore. And, or at least for me, I didn't have that kind of like problem of identity anymore in that way. Like, Oh, I wouldn't do that. So I just, yeah, I was like, all right, I'm going to do these. And I don't know what to say that it like worked so well, like, I, I thank Julia Cameron in the back of my book. I, I mean, saw I, that. I saw yeah. that. I saw that. I couldn't help but notice it. And I was like, oh, I bet she did the morning pages. And, you know, it makes me think of Otessa Moshfeg, who I believe when she wrote Eileen, her novel, used some kind of like fiction instruction book that oh, right, on, yeah. on the surface is really corny. It's like write a novel in 100 days or whatever, you know, one of these things. But she used it and it worked. She just followed that curriculum and you know, okay, maybe there's some wisdom in this. Like sometimes you need a framework or a guide. And, you know, Julia Cameron, say what you will about her, has helped a lot of people make a lot of books. Oh, she's, I mean, she really, I don't know, I hate to be macabre, but I just feel like she can die well. Like, that's like a good thing to have, like, and she really talks about that so passionately throughout the like the program of the morning pages about how like what we're supposed to do like our like we just need to like make I don't know I feel like it is like we have to make like God wants us to be creative like that is her message and I'm on board with that I just yeah like I I really think that that's I am completely on board with it and it, it was so beautiful. And actually, so one of the first weeks of the morning pages, you have to do some sort of thing where you say like a doubt you have or like a belief you have about yourself. And then you have to like write a kind of affirmation that like heals that belief. And you have to do a bunch of those every morning for like one of the weeks. But that is the beginning of Bouvard and Pecochet's dialogue like when they start talking to each other in the book and Pecuchet is like saying, but I'm not good. I'm not good at this. And Bouvard's like comforting him. That's just my morning page. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is wrong because Julia Cameron says, don't use this shit. This isn't for use. This is like, you're not supposed to use that or like. Oh, but you can fudge on that. I think she's just trying yeah. to make sure you don't put too much pressure on yourself. You know, it's yeah. like, this is free time. But I think that like, you know, I relate because I've done both. I've, I'm, I'm a big meditator and I, uh, I've done the morning pages and I think you could say journaling. People get up in the morning and just sort of, you just sort of barf out what's on your mind. Uh, I know there's some more structure to it with the morning pages. You know, you have these exercises and whatnot. But I, I think in both cases, you're watching your mind. You're kind of paying attention to your thoughts and feelings as they arise and giving voice to them. And even if it doesn't lead, as in this particular instance, to an actual passage in a book, it can kind of clean the slate a little bit so you have room to create, you know, just to get all that static out. I think both meditation and just free writing or doing kind of these kinds of exercises, they help with that, you know, at least for me. Oh, so much. And you could just see it. Like I would start the morning pages and be really particular and like everything had to be good. And then you, you get loose and, and you become so work a day. You become somebody who knows that you can just keep writing and you just start to feel that confidence of like, I know how to keep doing this. Yeah, it's like, it was great. And it's so much about being loving to yourself and giving yourself wonderful treats and imagining wonderful things. And I wanted, like one of my favorite things is that you got to, <laughs> you had to like pursue a childhood treat 
and like just really enjoy something you liked as a kid. And um, I just like, I really wanted to like uh, have like treats that were like um, juices that were in bags. Yeah, like Capri Sun. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> and then like fortunately, that's like a really popular thing at like co-ops now. Like you can always get those little bagged like protein drinks and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I would get those. So I think the last thing I want to talk with you about is friendship because friendship is such a big part of this book. I think it's the sweetheart of your book. And I think it's maybe the sweetheart of your life uh, and the way that you have been able to endure through like a really difficult family upbringing and all that that entails. Also your your health situation. I mean, you've talked about, is it Jean-Paul, your partner? Yeah. And yeah. how, you know, you have such a sweet and loving relationship there. That That's obviously, um, you know, that's a, a huge advantage in life to have something like that. But friendship too, you know, because friends are the family that we choose. And your book speaks to this. And I, I want to talk to you about just that in general as like a personal matter. And then also I think how it factors into your book. Um, like you said something like your book is a lot about institutions. You know, it's like the institution of the family, the institution of like, you know, art world institutions, academia, and you're kind of picking at these things, you know, and, um, you know, dismantling them or taking them apart a little bit. And you said something that really struck me. You said, I think a radical thing to do within institutions is to form friendships. And I was like, oh, like it's one of those things that like after the fact made the book click into place a little bit for me. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It means a lot to me. Friendship. I love it. I mean, one of the things on my mind when I said that is that, you know, I'm like kind of ensconced in institutional life. I became a professor and, and it's so institutional, like everything's like, you know, all of those, the characters of the institution become really intense. And then, um, I don't know, I, I kind of got surprised by the friendships that I actually get to make inside of it, like particularly with my friend, um, the writer Zach Finch, who teaches with me and it just feels like it's so um, like it doesn't match, <laughs> like it doesn't match to be this warm, not because I don't, I actually don't, I like have a lot of faith in institutionality. Like I don't think institutions are evil. I'm like, institutions are just like people. They're as flawed as people are. And what can you do? I, I, but it's amazing to like try to be vulnerable inside of an institution or even just with my teaching, like sometimes my teaching ethos is like to be like oddly, like really vulnerable and unknowing with my students. And then that's like not like the right, like that's not what they're expecting or what I'm supposed to be doing. And then it's like interesting. So I just, I think that's where things can happen. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, just like, I'm thinking about like the, um, like the recent success with like the Amazon unionization and that that was really built out of like actual relationships and friendships and like an outside union, like could not come in and like, just like campaign for those workers. Like, no, they needed to feed each other and like talk to each other and like 
shelter each other. Like if you want things, you better like be prepared to shelter somebody and feed them. Like that's what I think. I was thinking about that because I was expecting that you, because sometimes on your in your conversations, you talk a lot about publishing and I've been feeling really feisty about publishing lately. So I've been like, <laughs> I was like waiting to talk to you about that. But I just think that about publishers, like I've been like lucky enough to have publishers who are like literally shelter me and feed me and like help me out and like know me as a friend and like care about my books through caring about me and like these ways that are really so beautiful. And like, I just think that's what publishing should be like too. Like, like you should be like feeding and sheltering and like housing, not just the sentences, but like the person. And like, if you think about like, that's what like Virginia and Leonard did um, with the Hogarth press. Like they just like had people come into their home and like, have them there and give them meals and like let them stay with them. Like, I just, I think that that's, that's what everything actually needs to come down to. Like, are you feeding and sheltering? Like, that's what it really is. So if that starts to happen inside of institutions and the whole institution will change, just like these Amazon people becoming friends with each other and knowing each other and speaking with each other and feeding each other, then maybe something about their work environment can change because of that. So I think that that's what should happen all the time. <laughs> but that's that, what my friends do for me. Yeah, I think that's a really intelligent, I mean, it's extrapolating a little bit, but it's very intelligent. And I'm glad to hear you talk with nuance about institutions because we live in a time when faith in institutions has really been taken down several notches. And it makes me uncomfortable uh, to a large degree, because I think we need institutions. And I think when you're talking about institutions, you're just talking about human organization. You're talking about human relationship. These are, these are things that humans have built together a lot of time in good faith. And then maybe things get out of whack or there's a power imbalance or there's corrupt activity happening that can help to diminish faith. And then, then there are also people who seek to diminish faith in institutions because they have nefarious ends on their mind. But I think we need to acknowledge our interconnectedness. And, and I think I, like where I stand is that we have to have institutions. You know, this can't just be like, like a free-for-all anarchy. I mean, maybe some more of that could be good. You know, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I, I guess I'm just saying that like we need each other. <laughs> oh, I find it foolish. I just find it totally foolish to think that there's some sort of to fantasize about some ideal outside of the institution is, I don't know what, to what end, like what, like that will just become an institution. Like you could fantasize about that. Like there is no outside to me. Like, it's just like people are going to person wherever they are. So we, yeah. Like, and and think about academia. Like think about like, I, you know, how you like, you I'll read about like the transcendentalists and, how they all went to Harvard College and it was just like one building and like the library, like, you know, was kind of tiny, but to have a book was like to have a piece of gold and all this kind of stuff. And then we think about today, like just to use academia as an example of like the proliferation of university education and the access that people have, it could st always be better. Uh, you know, we can pick that apart a million different ways, but I'm just saying that like, there's been a lot of building there's been a lot of building and it's done a lot of good and it's done some bad, but like it's done more good than bad. And so maybe try to improve the thing rather than like just tear it down or piss on it all the time. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, yeah. And 
the cool thing about institutionality is that not everybody in that space is acting all as one. It's not like a monolith inside of it. There's all kinds of like corners of, of what's going on. Like that's, what's cool about it, that there's something actually impersonal that holds all, all of it too, that like allows, like, I really like that about being a professor. Like, and I, I will say specifically a professor in a unionized um, setting. Like I think, like, I'm just like, think the union is amazing, but the union creates this like impersonal personhood where you're like, it doesn't matter if you like me or I like you, or if we all like are perfect with one another or the, or the same, because we're all like in this governing principle of like, what is, what this space is, which is made by like human ideas, but I don't know, but it, it like allows for like all kinds of things can happen that are just different inside of it. I had this really wonderful evening last night at my institution where um, we host every year a younger writer who's under 27 who comes to do a residency um, kind of partly at my college and partly at um, this big museum that's in our town, Mass Mocha. And um, we just hosted the um, this poet who's under the age of 27 named Grace Gilbert, who's really impressed the hell out of me, just like awesome poetry. And um, they came and then even those students are like getting ready to do finals. I had about like 15 students gather from seven to 9 p.m. last night to do like a workshop with Grace and like to just talk about like writing with them. And I was just like, this is amazing. Like this isn't like, this is just people determining to gather together in the evening to be with one another and to say like that that's what we wanna do with our time and to just say weird things and be bonkers together and, and have food. And that's just what it's about for me, like finding these spaces. And and just like what you were saying, like so much moves around as a writer when you're in, in those spaces instead of like a maybe like a workshop space or a classroom space anyway. Like it's like all of these like other kind of outside spaces and incidental spaces or they feel incidental. They might feel incidental for you, but your professor's actually been planning this for all year, but you know, whatever. But like, yeah, there's like room for a lot of like coincidence and incident and conversation and we should just be around each other. Yeah. There should be occasions to be around each other. Well, on that note, uh, I have enjoyed being with you and I <laughs> congratulate you on your book. Thank you for taking time to talk with me. Uh, do you have anything in the works? Like, are you working on another book? I always ask people this. It's fine if you don't, but I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. It's okay. It's okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm working on this new manuscript that is about the crimes of gynecologists. It's really a shame how often we're hearing in recent years about people like Larry Nassar and Mahendra Amin, um, the doctor at the ICE, um, in the ICE facility who's been stealing uteruses from women. They literally call him the uterus stealer down there. And there's been a lot of really wonderful journalists and, and women, um, people with uteruses who are speaking out and reporting on the crimes of gynecologists, which seem to pop up all over the place at different universities and different institutional settings. And I just think there's a crisis point in that profession. It's happening all across the country, these new reports of years-long, decades-long crimes of these gynecologists. And so I wrote a novel about it. Wow. 
Okay. Do we have a pub, pub publisher and a publication date or is it still, are you still in the works on it? No, I don't know what's going to happen. Okay. Well, I have no information all right. <laughs> about that. That's okay. Well, I will, I will keep my fingers crossed for you and we'll await it. And I thank you again for taking the time to talk with me and congrats once more on Revenge of the Scapegoat. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been so nice. Okay, everybody, that is Karen Balin, and her new novel is called Revenge of the Scapegoat, available now from Dorothy. Karen Balin is on the internet, or is on the internet, yeah, at karenbalin.com. Let me double check that. Yeah, karenbalin.com. I do not think she is on social media. Her other books are entitled Blackfishing the IUD, Spain, and the University of Pennsylvania. She also authored a chapbook entitled Americans, Guests, or Us. She is an assistant professor of creative writing at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. And one more time, her new book is called Revenge of the Scapegoat, available now wherever books are sold. Go get your copy. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show, almost 800 and counting, is available to you, the listener, for free. It's a listener-supported show. You can support this show for as little as $1 per month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff, a t-shirt, a tote bag, coffee mug, book club subscription. I will send you a note in the mail. I will wish you a happy birthday. Check it out over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget, if you're interested, to pre-order my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, due out on May 10th from IG. You can get it in trade paperback. You can get the audiobook. You can get the ebook. It's coming out soon. And you can listen to the first chapter of the audiobook excerpted in this podcast feed just a couple of days ago. So check that out if you want to. The Other People Podcast has its own email newsletter. I do an email newsletter once per week, and it's free. You can sign up for it over at bradlisty.com or at this show's official website, otherppl.com. The Other People Podcast also has its own official app. Did you know that? This show has an app. It's a great app. Go get the app wherever you get apps. Search for it by name, Other PPL with bradlisty.com or other ppl with bradlisty you know what i mean same thing goes for the youtube channel for this show the entire archive every single interview that i've ever done is on the uh, other people youtube channel search for it by name and subscribe to the youtube channel if you're a youtube person it's free and it helps the cause last thing i will say is that if you would be kind enough to rate and review this podcast over at apple podcasts or wherever you listen that helps. It helps algorithmically. It helps the show find new listeners. All right. So thank you for tuning in. Good episode today. Fun conversation with Karen Balin. And I will be back next week with more. <laughs>